0: Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. Today's episode is presented by Equinor. Is H2O the industrial emission of the future? At Equinor, we're planning to help industry fuel switch to hydrogen. And when hydrogen is used as fuel, its only emission is water. Visit equinor.co.uk
1: Today's episode is presented by Lloyds Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyds Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK.
2: Find me a man who's interesting enough to have dinner with, and I'll be happy, said the actress. Lauren Bacall, and I thought I'd put this theory to the test on this week's podcast. People are generally more fun over dinner, in Westminster anyway, where meetings over coffee or even lunch can be so time pressured, two sets of eyes flicking back and forth at their mobile phones, minds racing on to the next thing, or back over the last. Conversations here flow better at the end of the day, there's time to relax, time literally sometimes to chew the fat. Time for a decent bottle of red. Time, on a really good day, to open the port. Now I'd last seen David Davis up in Bridlington, in his native Yorkshire, recording an episode of Any Questions from Radio 4. Myself, David and the other guests were drinking wine afterwards in a hotel bar just off the seafront, and I was telling him about this podcast I now make for Politico. I'd recently made an episode on political drinking, an idea which seemed to tickle him, And he started telling me tales about his own favourite encounters with Tory grandees from years gone by, in various pubs and bars around the world. For some reason, an entertainingly boozy session with Ken Clark in some distant European capital, back in the early 90s, still stands out. Anyway, the whole thing planted the seed of an idea. What about an interview that looked a bit like that? A hotel bar, a bottle of red wine, something good to eat. Couldn't we just mic up the table? and have a chat. So, fast forward a few months and here we are. Carriage's Bar and Grill at the Corinthia Hotel on Northumberland Avenue, a few minutes stroll down the embankment from Westminster. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for coming over. It's Monday evening and David has just come straight from Parliament where the bill to rewrite large parts of the Northern Ireland Protocol, a central plank of Boris Johnson's supposedly oven-ready Brexit deal, had just been published. Had lured him over here with the promise of fine red wine and decent steak. And over the next few hours, we worked our way through both and, yes, made it to the port as well. Safe to say I felt suitably dire the following day. We discussed his 35-year career in Parliament, his status as the Conservative Party's most maverick backbencher, his views on Boris Johnson. A bit of genius about him. David Cameron.
3: He takes the career view of politics. I don't. And Theresa May. He probably hates me.
2: Talked about his childhood growing up in council housing in Yorkshire and in South London. How have you had five <laughs> notices? Three rugby, one accident, one lack of social skill. And we talked Brexit, of course, from his days as May's negotiator-in-chief to how he thinks the project is going now.
3: Ireland's going to take a long time. It's going to take a decade to get right now, I think.
2: David Davis was generous with his time, candid in his answers, entertaining in his digressions and just gloriously David Davis in everything he said.
3: I might as well be in my 40s in terms of physical fitness. My resting part is about 40.
2: From Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard, and this week on Westminster Insider, I'm inviting you to dinner with David Davis MP to share a decent cut of steak and a bottle of Malbec with one of the Tory party's most interesting characters. And yes, Politico is picking up the tab. It's 7.30 on Monday evening and David Davis has just breezed into the Carinthia Hotel after a busy day in Westminster. He's relaxed, besuited, tireless, full of smiles and ready to chat. We talk first a little about the government's latest plans to rewrite the rules on Brexit. He hasn't actually read them yet, although in fairness they were only published about an hour ago. And then, almost before I know it, we're instantly into his own starring role in Britain's Brexit story and the two years he spent as Theresa May's first Brexit secretary. In theory, if not always in practice, her chief negotiator with Europe. What was it like
3: to get that call out of the blue from Number 10? I mean, so much was I not looking for. I had my phone switched off. I was in the atrium of Portcullis House. I'd gone to have a drink with my previous chief of staff, lady called Renata Sampson. I'm sitting there, and suddenly she says to me, Twitter keeps saying you're in number 10. And I laughed, you <laughs> know. Uh, and, and so I said, well, take a photograph of me holding this glass of wine. <laughs> so this is not number 10. So she did that. It still kept saying I was in number 10. And I suddenly got off oh, my phone switched off. So I switched it back on again, a great stream of texts from the, you know, the mm-hmm. number 10 switchboard. And I rang them up, and they said, oh, uh, can, you, can you be over here in you know?" In half an hour, with it. I was like, well, i there five minutes, you won't be. Did you already
2: have a good relationship with Theresa May? Were you old mates? I mean-
3: um, No, uh, good-ish, because I'd supported her in the leadership election. Mm. I mean, I'd had a few run-ins with her as Home Secretary, as you might imagine, all the civil liberties mm. and yeah. justice side of things. But, you know, I quite liked her still quite like her, frankly, you know, uh, she probably hates me now, know. Um, but who uh, knows? But no, I, I I think she's she's from a very good school of public servants, shall we say. Uh, she believes in public service. Look, look, everybody in politics has, of course, to some extent, their own interest at in mind, but you know, you you, you think with Theresa that's well-balanced by the concept of the public interest. Yeah. And so, no, I think yeah, I, I approve of her, really. we get some wine? Yeah. Red or white? Um, um, probably red if we're going to have steak.
2: Dare no. I give the wine list to David Davis to choose? No, no. I think I should. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm completely ignorant about wine. I order an eye wateringly expensive bottle of Malbec and a salt aged ribeye for two with Bernays sauce. Are we going to get the steak? No, probably sensible. You've got to grab the perks in this job where you can find them, right? Davis comes to me fresh from a fairly explosive interview with the veteran broadcaster Andrew Neil the night before, when he was given a pretty torrid time about the way Brexit has played out so far.
3: Andrew is one
2: of the better interviewers around. David was asked to list the benefits and essentially replied, well, let's wait and see. Yeah, they a good go at you on Brexit, didn't you? you, a, you yeah, good I mean, in fact, actually,
3: I thought he was asking about just Northern Ireland and when he asked about the benefits and of the... Listen along with your bloody arm, vaccines, freedom on Ukraine, all these other things. But um, I was just thinking Northern Ireland alone. I said, well, wait and see. You know, we mm-hmm. just too soon to tell. We only really just got out of COVID, for heaven's sake. You know, and, uh, that's one of the problems. I think... Um, Some of the signs aren't great, though, in terms of... Well, look, what hasn't, yeah, is what, o- what hasn't happened is what George Osborne predicted. Right, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, basically the the economic disaster. Right, Mm -hmm. what has happened is a continuation of a trend which has been going on for 25 years in decline in our exports to the European Union. 20, at least a 25-year-long trend. That's not surprising. Employment levels are as high as they need to be. I mean, from the point of view of the ordinary citizen, you know, if they need a job, they can get a job. You know, if anything, we've got employment shortages at the moment, so that means we're going to have to open up our global immigration, but for skilled people, for the people we need, not just people who come whether we like it or not. We still have control of it. The simple democratic outcome is better too, you know. Uh, know, We make our own decisions, you know. Trouble is, the last two years we haven't had much option except bloody COVID, you know.
2: Both sides of that argument, I mean, I was a journalist covering that referendum campaign. Hmm. I don't think many people on this island Hmm. appreciated the impact on violent, right? Not right. at
3: all, not at all really. Well obviously we, we, it was raised right at the beginning of the negotiation point. We raised it, not the Europeans. But no, we, I, don't think, I don't think people saw all the outcomes there. But to think that
2: nearly now, what's hmm. just coming up to six years after the vote, is mm-hmm. still bitter, bitter rows over this particular issue. Yeah. Yeah. It's just amazing that it was not really debated at all.
3: At no time. it wasn't. I think that's a fair criticism of the overall debate. I think that's probably right. A few honourable exceptions, I should say, but not many yeah, people. Yeah, were not many. But, uh, yeah. I mean, obviously, they did in Northern Ireland itself, of course. Um, but no, I think that's probably—I think that's a fair criticism, to be honest. Yeah. Do you look back on
2: that campaign and some of the arguments that are made now that we can start to see the reality and think some— mis- you know—can you see other mistakes where you think, yeah, we got that wrong or they got that wrong? <sighs> you mentioned Osborne's. Obviously, well, I haven't, I
3: haven't spent a great deal of time fretting about that. I mean, bear in mind I wasn't actually in the official Leave campaign. No, I know. So I never liked the 350 million argument, for example.
2: A lot of the, a lot of the general promises and hopes don't seem to have materialised Well, like, as I
3: say, you've had COVID in the middle of it. It's a bit difficult to do that with the entire world economy. Didn't quite doesn't grind to a halt, but you know it has slowed down dramatically. This is why I said to, to Andrew yesterday, give me a year, let's see, because once COVID's out of the way, we'll get a better idea.
2: What does but, what would success look like in a year? What would we, how would I look at that and go, he's, he's right. Well, he's I would, I
3: would, no, I'd look at the aggregate. You see, I, I wouldn't fret about this or that trade flow, or this or that. I'd say, you know, what's the aggregate benefit for the overall, well, the ordinary person? That's the test, right? You were out campaigning in Wakefield, weren't you? In yeah. The, back yeah. in the last
2: week, yeah. uh, ahead of the by-election there. What, what was the sort of, Sense did you get from wandering around Well funny enough it was better than I thought actually
3: I think it was a moderately Tory area moderately Tory Do people recognise you? Oh yeah Yes they they recognise me Is that Uh, good? Huh? Is that good?
2: Recognise you in a good way? I think so What were they saying to you about talking about tax We're talking about cost of living parties You don't have
3: time Really? When when you're doing if you're doing a by-election campus you're doing as fast as you can I mean you pick up a lot you know, and you end up with a feeling about it. Like in 2019, I went to 17 swing seats, 16 of them were so-called Red war seats, and uh, no stereotyping or anything, but they sent me to lots of councillor dates. <laughs> and most of them were talking about Corbyn and about the threat to tax. This is a spontaneous in, comment. In negative terms, I'm In negative terms. And three-quarters of the negatives were about tax... They thought yeah. he put that. I mean, taxes the sort of, up. The, I, I'm, look, the sort of typical conversation went something like, I'm a welder, you know, or whatever. I'm paid pretty well. You know, he says he'll tax the rich, but I think he'll tax me. And that was about three quarters of them. And about a quarter of them were often ex-soldiers who didn't like him for, as it were, patriotic reasons. They didn't like the fact he talked to the IRA and talked to Hamas and Hezbollah and people like that. And these were working-class voters in rebel seats. Uh, and that was important. Now, that's one of the reasons, not the only reason by long, long marches, one of the reasons I'm concerned that we are seen, according to the polls, as a high-tax party. You know, I think that's, that's quite hazardous for us. You know? and,
2: and, of course, from an electoral point of view, you're not facing Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. anymore either. Yeah,
3: we're not facing Jeremy Corbyn. So the high-tax issue will be problematic unless we fix it. That being said, it's quite interesting this week, I think it was this week, there was a poll saying that people s- still thought Boris Johnson would make a better prime minister mm. than, than Keir Starmer. Yeah, he was which, in the Observer on something. Yeah, right. that's right, and which is quite interesting. You know, it suggests that that you know Boris can recover. So I think that he's got some work to do. He's got work to do on tax. He's got work to do on housing. I think. You know, my generation, when I was in my twenties, sixty-five percent of people were buying their own house. Now it's about twenty-five. You know.
2: What about more council housing? Would you like to see a load, loads of a big council house
3: building? Well, I want to see more houses, full stop. The ownership is secondary, to be honest. Uh, I approve of the, the plan allowing people to buy uh, housing association houses. Indeed, I announced a plan like that in 2002, almost exactly 20 years ago. My parents were both lifetime Labour voters, never voted anything but Labour all their lives the moment they could buy their council house they bought their council house like that instantaneously you know
2: how did uh, someone growing up in a council house with two lifetime labor voters end up as a Tory politician Does that happen?
3: <laughs> actually i was brought up for the first six years of my life by my grandfather who was a communist yeah so you know uh, in a uh, in a prefab you know as best as prefab But in fact the first place i lived with my parents my stepfather and my mother uh, was actually you call it a slum today you know were you
2: aware of that at the time even as a young
3: well i was I was aware it was not as nice the the people think prefab's terrible actually Prefab's quite nice um, it was well designed it was warm both physically and emotionally it sat in a great big garden which ended at the medieval walls at Yorks so had the best playground of the world you know these days, kids had bouncy castles. I had a stone castle. <laughs> you know? So there could be, you, know, you don't want to get too pitying about all this. But I went from there to the slum, and so I did notice that. But then we went to a council house, which was much, much nicer. It was, I mean, council house felt quite luxurious, you know. But how did I come to be a Tory? Well, it was a sort of mixture of things. I'd, I'd left home for university. I, my time with the army reserves, which had a bit of an effect on me in terms of my view of defence and international affairs I went to university and I was still probably dithering about then where my politics were and it was Warwick University which in in those days was the most left-wing university in the country along with LSE those were the two places where there were big sit-ins and marches and so on Uh, and that sort of concluded the persuasion late 1960s yeah 68
2: through
3: 71 sorry 74 in total but you
2: weren't hanging around with a ponytail and a
3: no, my hair was longer than it is now, it was, but it was curly. It wasn't, there were no, no ponytails. In fact, I, mean, I, had, I had basically one set of clothes, a pair of torn jeans and a T-shirt. And, a, and my wife always reminds me, I had a brine nylon shirt as well. <laughs> she, she hated, <laughs> quite rightly, because I didn't have any money. You know? I'd left home, I didn't get grants. I had earn money for a while to go there and had no cash. I mean, the poorest in my life i have been was at university, actually. But it didn't, it, it didn't feel poor. Yeah. Still reeling at the image of Davis as a curly-haired
2: teenager in ripped jeans and bry nylon shirt, I ask him about his rather unique brand of Toryism and where it came from.
3: My politics is quite distinctive in the sense that it's not really conventional Tory either, as you see on things like Rwanda or, or aid. But I always say to myself, you've got to pick right from wrong before you pick right from left. So that's why I end up in what some people call civil libertarian battles, you know, or rule of law battles, or I end up defending people who get into difficulties.
2: And there's not that many MPs who you can, who you put in that bracket, are there? Who put, you know, who are willing to take a very individual line on different areas?
3: Of the no. I mean part of the reason for that, I think, is the sort of careerist nature of modern politics they uh, and and your profession contributes to it in a way because they sort of behave as though you only matter if you're a minister you get promoted you get in the cabinet and so on right and everything's sort of thought of around that i don't agree with that i mean some of the best things i've done have been on the back benches you know and this started right back at the beginning i mean some of it now is because i'm hard bitten and uh, enough i know most of the game in terms of Parliament, how to make it work, you know, how to get TV coverage for something, you know. But you know, the very first thing when I when I got into the House, pretty much the first thing I did was rebel. And the Thatcher government. Bear in mind, nineteen eighties. Yeah, I got I got on well with Thatcher, and the first thing I did was rebel over something called the Eyes and Teeth Rebellion, which was about charging people for having eyesight tests and dental checkups. Now, there's a disease called glaucoma which if you go for an eyesight test, that's how they detect glaucoma. I thought, well, if charging for it cuts the number of people having their eyesight tested by, let's say, 10%, that's 2,000 people a year will go blind without it being detected. And I said to that, she, she, she asked me about it in the corridor one day, she said, I understand you're voting against the government. Very stern. And I said, yes, Margaret. I said, I didn't get elected to have three of my constituents go blind every year. You know, and that's what it'll do. And we got a change. We, we, you know, I didn't defeat the government, or I voted against them, but we got a change whereby if, you, if you've got glaucoma in the family, when you're 40 years old, you get a letter to say you get free eyesight tests from now on. So that was the first one. The
2: steak has now arrived. Sliced pieces of rare beef on a ludicrously oversized platter with various sides and condiments to move things along. The waiter leaves it discreetly on the table and makes himself scarce. They're not going to come back and serve that, are they? We serve, we serve ourselves and talk about his two years as Brexit negotiator between the summers of 2016
3: and 18. I just poke some off. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What better
2: accompaniment, after all, to fine wine and rare meat than some good old Brexit chat? Very inelegant, but never mind. <laughs> Did you enjoy the, um, the negotiation period when you were in the Cabinet? Was that like a...? That fun?
3: Some of it, but not all of it. I mean, I, the, the the bit that drove me mad was um, at the end of it. I was shut out basically. Number ten was running a parallel policy. Man, they're all remainers. You'd expect it, really. They th- they took the view that being ultra reasonable would deliver the results, and
2: it didn't. The reason may is not much of a remainer. They were severely.
3: Look, not, I'm not. I'm not saying that somehow you know she was some sort of traitor to the cause. She wasn't. It's it's a mindset. How do you expect them to behave? How do you expect them to play? And how else to explain the decision to basically give them the sequencing they wanted? The sequencing of the
2: negotiations, if you remember, was an early row about the order in which things would be discussed. Theresa May quickly bowed to EU demands that key issues such as Britain's outstanding financial debt to Brussels and the future of the Irish border would be agreed first, before any trade agreement. For Davis, this was a disaster
3: sequencing's incredibly important in negotiations we should have taken them to their normal nothing is finished until it's all finished line and held them to that you know then the money would have been effectively conditional then all sorts of other things would have been conditional but they didn't well, I don't blame them no I mean, they did what they thought was best it just didn't work
2: what do you think of Michel Barnier now you always seem to get on quite well with him at yeah he's fine time. have you it's read fine. his book
3: um no again somebody says he's quite polite about me in you know. it
2: um, he called you nonchalant. Nonchalant. <laughs> Is that fair?
3: You must never let the other side see you wince. <laughs> <laughs> I've known him for 30 years. Oh, really? Oh yeah. oh, yeah. We were sort of allies back in the day oh. when I was Europe Minister. Oh, I see. He was France's Europe Minister.
2: Did you know when Barnier was appointed, immediately you'd be facing a formidable adversary?
3: No, um, it's the system you're up against. The individual is almost, not irrelevant, but he's, he's, uh, he's going to do mostly the same things whoever it is. You can sort of see the pattern.
2: He definitely suggests in the book that you were not always... That thing about being underprepared was definitely... Something
3: he plays on a little bit. Yeah, what, did you think,
2: what did you think of all that? With the papers at the desks and all that?
3: Photo? Well, I think it was a bit of a charade. Well I, well, I think it was. I know it was a bit of a charade. Whenever photographers come into the cabinet room, you put your papers away. That's what you do. You know? um, and the idea that I didn't know my entire brief back to front is uh, sort of silly, really. And he knows that.
2: Do you look back with it, on all of that, with some regret? You know... Things you could have done differently or things that we could have done differently? As a, as
3: a well, of course, I think we could have collectively have done differently, but uh, um, it is what it is. I don't regret things. It's not my style. You can't rewrite history. So you, know, you live with what it is and rewrite the future.
2: You must have one or two regrets. Come on, there you've been in politics for nearly, what, not 35 my years? The decision to resign from Cameron's shadow cabinet. Do you reflect on that and think, oh, my life could have been completely different? if I? No, it was the right thing to do. Now, in case you need a quick reminder here, Davis briefly quit Parliament altogether in 2008 in protest at Gordon Brown's plans to extend the period suspected terrorists could be detained without charge to a whopping 42 days. Although he was swiftly re-elected as an MP, the job he'd held as David Cameron's Shadow Home Secretary was gone, along with a possible Cabinet job a couple of years later.
3: It would come back under the Parliament Act a year later. We could have been about three months before the election. Now, do you think David Cameron would have opposed a populist measure like that three months before a general election? No. So we would have ended up in government with 42 days detention without charge and not in a moral position to reverse it because we wouldn't have opposed it. Mm-hmm. No. People don't think those things through. I do. Or no. no, I did on that occasion anyway.
2: But it had a pretty big impact on your immediate career for the next...
3: So yeah, but so you, uh, that's the thing. I'm not a careerist. If I w- want to worry about career, I would have made tons of money and not bothered with this at all. That's not what this is about, you know? So what is it about? It's about changing, changing the world as best you can.
2: And do you think you've done that?
3: Oh, yeah. Yeah. From glaucoma onwards, I have a little ritual I do each year. I sit down at the end of the year and make a, get an A4 pad out, a glass of whiskey and work out whether the year has been worth the the money I might have earned if I was doing something else. But in, about seven out of ten times it is. And the times it isn't is often when I'm a minister, because somebody else could have done the same thing. Whereas for your backbencher, you often do things that nobody would do. Yeah, this must be your 35th anniversary in mm-hmm.
2: Parliament. Is it coming up? Yeah, in, minute, in about...
3: Uh, what's the date? Yeah, sometime this month, I think. Yeah.
2: And you'll be 75 next year?
3: 74 next year. 74 yeah. next year. Are
2: mm-hmm. you going to stand again next year? Oh. Haven't had enough
3: of this yet? No. Oh. <laughs> still, still hitting a 7 out of 10 ratio? You see me slowing down. The test I had for that was when I was in Canada to see whether anybody picked up the baton of the sort of rule of law, stroke, liberty, stroke, privacy, sort of right to the individual, if you like. Um, and nobody did, which puts the onus back on me. Your family aren't like, come on, David. <laughs> no, no. Well, they're all they're all grown up anyway. <clears throat> they um, got grandchildren. Um, I have other incomes as well, so you know if they need money, I can help them. So that that's not an issue, really. Yeah. Um, there's also you know there's um, I mean I'm I'm fit. You know I'm. I'm you know, I might as well be in my 40s in, in terms of physical fitness. It's not It's not an issue for me.
2: Now, I should just say here in the interest of balance that I am literally in my 40s in terms of physical fitness. And some days, I can barely walk down the stairs. But anyway, let's carry on.
3: You know, I, I run my 10 to 15 miles a week. Uh, I don't rock climb anymore, but, uh, but that's, that's rotator cuff injury, so I can't do that anymore. When I can, I try to fly, but that's, that's very rare these days. I can't... Uh, no, I can't get the time or the or the available aircraft, you know.
2: Again, for transparency purposes, I also rarely go flying these days, although that's not because of a lack of available aircraft. Anyway, that's enough of this for now. After the break, I'll be asking David Davis for his views on each of our most recent Prime Ministers and on whether he has any regrets about Brexit six years on. Stay with us for the port and cheese course and beyond.
0: A message from Equinor. Back to that question from Equinor. Is H2O the industrial emission of the future? At Equinor, we believe so. That's because when hydrogen is used as fuel, its only emission is water. Our H2H Saltend project is planning to bring hydrogen power to the Humber, the UK's most carbon-intensive industrial region. See how we're accelerating the UK energy transition at equinor.co.uk.
1: A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise, and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade.
2: Who's been our best Prime Minister since Thatcher, do
3: you think? Since Thatcher? Well, if he had me for a rack, I'd say Blair. But he did have a rag, <laughs> So it's really hard. Major was amazingly well-intentioned. I mean, it, 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 in performance terms, there just isn't one. In wanting to do the best for people, I would put probably Major at the top of it. Even though he ended up not being a success, he did. In electoral terms, he was the biggest disaster for the Tory Party. But it's, it's, a, it's a hard call. And to say, if, if, if Blair had not got to 9-11, Blair would have been there just as an administrator. I mean, the government ran in his day, didn't do much, didn't change much. I mean, the, the truth is there are only two prime ministers post-war who have actually reformed the country. One was Attlee and one was Thatcher. Nobody else really counts. They're basically just managers.
2: Does that say something about our political system, about the types of leaders we produce? Or or is that a good thing? I mean, do we want everyone to well, you be Well, you, 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 you wouldn't want a Thatcher
3: every year. <laughs> I mean, I would have died of, died of overwork by now. <laughs> um, it's an interesting question. Um, I mean, they, they, they say, you know, countries get the prime ministers they deserve, you know, uh, or... A, a better way of putting that is the circumstance calls into being the person you need, you know. It was true for Thatcher, it was true for Reagan, true for Eisenhower back in the day, true for Kennedy, you know. And I say, true for Attlee. I mean, Attlee was right for the time. I mean, even though know, at the end of the day they made a mess of the economy and, and kept rationing in place what 1952 was it. But uh, you know, you don't want geniuses all all the time.
2: And where would you rate the current Prime Minister compared to the last few? What do you think?
3: Well, I've said I want him to go. So. He wanted
2: to go, but I mean, he wanted Theresa May to go, presumably, and David Cameron too. I mean, how does he compare to what
3: we've had before? Well, he's just completely different. I mean, look, I voted for him coming in, and the, um, the reason I voted for him was basically because he had a really difficult Brexit outcome because of, of May's strategy on it. And I thought he'd probably be the one to carry it off. And I think that's probably still broadly right. I mean, I don't think it's perfect. I was seeing with today with the Northern Ireland Protocol's difficulties with it. But if by some bit of magic I could have foreseen the COVID crisis, I might have voted for somebody else. Yeah. I might have wanted to bring May back for that matter, because, you know, she was, a, if nothing else, she was a very managerial prime minister. You wanted somebody very managerial, very across it. Actually, over Covid, May would have done probably the best job of the last several uh, prime ministers, but wasn't the bee, you know. Awesome. We didn't know.
2: <laughs> um, do you think you'll be around to see another Tory prime minister in um, the next three or three years? What well,
3: that all, that all hinges on what the Privileges Committee decides, I think. I think and that's I'll, the big crunch point. I now. think it is. And I, d- I don't want to preempt or guess what the Privileges Committee will decide. But I do think there'll be an important decision, did Boris knowingly mislead the House? They've got to make that decision. Either way, it'll be big. Either it'll be stabilized in place or not, but I just don't know.
2: I, I just don't see a guy there who would take much notice of what our Privileges Committee decided either way isn't it quite a quaint I'm, view I'm, to be
3: saying he'd resign if- well i'm not going to speculate on that but they
2: are uh... very wise
3: <laughs> <laughs> no i have nothing to fear whether there is an effigy in number 10 with pins in it it won't be the first time after all but <laughs> if there was i'm quite sure i'm quite sure cameron had an effigy of me Cameron cameron got very cross me from time to time particularly of Syria. i always
2: thought you two must have sort of weirdly got on quite well
3: not really. um when we worked together yes we did um but he could not understand the resignation over uh, forty two days It's just outside his world. you know David was one of those people who he takes the career view of politics i don't you know um, uh, and from from his point of view, my behavior is completely
2: inexplicable. Do you enjoy it as a world to be in this the one we're in right now, this like weird half a mile circle around Westminster and there's sort of strange people like us <laughs> who inhabit it. Oh, yeah, Do you? Do you like
3: yeah. it? Yeah, I mean, and, uh, nearly all of them are good people. Very few bad ones in the House of Commons, in truth. I know it's not the common view.
2: This is not the public's view, is it? No, of
3: course it isn't. And of course they've got their weaknesses. So let me give you an example. Um, the day I called the Prime Minister to go, I heard that one of my colleagues was calling me a traitor in the tea room, you see. So I sent him a text. He'd been, he'd been taking my name in vain in the tea room. Pistols at dawn, hamster teeth? <laughs> Question mark. You know. The next day, we were just doing the wash-up in the office over how the oligarchs debate had gone, and in he comes, my man who called me a traitor, and he just he says, David, he said, "He's at the moment, am I forgiven if I get you know, this, this bottle of wine? win me forgiveness, and he gave me a bottle of wine. No, that's, that's what it's like, you know. And you've obviously got no regrets about spending 35 years of your life in this mm-hmm. place. No. no, no, not at all, you know. In terms yeah. of lost income, there's a lot of millions of pounds. By the way, my sitting down at the, the desk with my glass of scotch and mm-hmm. a pad, I call it my half million test, because it goes back to when three of my subordinates, who previous subordinates in Tate's, took me out to dinner about two years after I'd been in the house, they were all earning a quarter of a million a year, each of them. and These had worked for me, right? So um, More than I'd been earning when, I was, when they were working for me, by the way. And one of them said, why are you doing this? He said, you work in a gothic slum. He you said, you, you don't have any command of anything, because I used to command big units. There's no privacy. You know, why do you do it? And so I told them the glaucoma story, and I told them a story about the abolition of the doc Labour scheme, which was the last big thatch of reform, which I drove. You know, I made and then they all said, yeah, all right, well, we understand, you know.
2: OK, oh, now, you're probably trigger. starting to realise that this in, dinner went on for a long time.
3: Every year.
2: Three hours, in fact, it's more, what, actually, what, although for obvious what, what, reasons, what, what, myself and my producer what, what, James have edited it down oh, to something a little more good, manageable busy, for your listening in, pleasure. It's
3: basically it's the last but,
2: yeah, there's lots more Every of this on the cutting room floor. You just heard the steak plates being cleared away, right? Well, then we ordered dessert. The chocolate parfait. And cheese. And I will have... Cheese, please. And, this being a Monday, two large glasses of port. One port? Yeah, I'll have a glass of port, why not? Two ports. And still, still, we talked about Brexit.
3: What was always going to be the case is there was going to be a bitter period. Because they were angry, this is their project. I mean, look, I'd be angry if I were them. There was going to be a bit of period, and you had to get that over. And the best thing to do was to coincide that bit of period with the hard-nosed stuff. Because they were going to be angry anyway, so let's fight the corner. Uh, and had we done that, that would have been six months, and then everybody would have said, let's calm down. That, that was, that's the natural psychological flow of these things. But they didn't. You know. So it, wasn't, well, it didn't necessarily have to go that way, but there we are. Yeah, and, it's, and look, it's largely recoverable. I mean, Ireland's going to take a long time. It's going to take a decade to get right now, I think, you know. Maybe I'm wrong about a decade, but it's going to take years to get right. That's what precipitated my departure was Ireland, the end day. Not immediately. It took me, I uh, waited six months to see if I could make the bloody thing work despite all all logic. I couldn't, so. It's
2: been a pretty chaotic country since that vote came in. Yeah. Do you ever just think maybe it wasn't worth it? No, not at all. Never have any doubts about it? No,
3: no. Firstly, because it's, de- it's, it's an issue of democracy, first and foremost. I mean, you know, we've had arguments about money and all these other things. The first and foremost issue is democracy. Do we run our own affairs? Michael Caine, the actor, who was a Brexiteer, said, rather a poor master than a rich slave. And whilst I wouldn't quite use those terms, master and slave, I know exactly what he means, right? That's the first thing. Secondly, we've got nowhere near either extreme. It's not not the disaster that Osborne was trying to characterise. We haven't yet delivered on the outcome, which we should have delivered on, but that's largely COVID. I don't really blame Boris for that. It's largely COVID doing that. We have had some significant benefits out of it. The the most obvious one was the vaccine. That's worth a few thousand lives. They're not small. I think the Ukraine decision was a freer decision and better made outside. We're going to have other things on the GMOs. That's our decision. Things like artificial intelligence, things like a whole series of issues on, on medicine and, and so on. It's not a certainty, but we have the opportunity to make the most of it. I have a grandchild who's got a genetic disease, and I reckon we're going to get a cure. Not, not early enough for her, I fear, but we're going to get a cure. And part of the reason will be in due course that we have liberalised our regulatory system. So the, there are lots and lots of opportunities coming. We've got to take them. They won't just bl- bl- fall out the sky in our lap. We've got to take them. Boris has now got a year, put, put the Privilege committee One side, he's got a year clear of votes against him. I approve of that. You know, um, I don't want to have another vote on it. Uh, and in that time, I hope he's going to start galvanizing those opportunities. And that'll be a very important benefit of Brexit, but it hasn't really started yet.
2: So that's David Davis, The Tory who sometimes isn't so Tory. The Boris supporter who doesn't much rate Boris. The cabinet assassin who wounded Theresa May, but now sometimes wishes she was back in charge. And if he means what he says about going on and on as a backbench MP, then the chances are he'll prove a painful thorn in the side of the next Tory Prime Minister as well. Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider with me, Jack Blanchard. If you've enjoyed it, do please subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. My producers this week were James Tyndale and Robert Nicholson of Whistledown Productions. And here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez. We'll be back next week. I'll see you then.